Hey, it's Jordan. I'm here with uh, Matt Taibbi. He is a journalist with Rolling Stone. And if you need any uh, substantive books uh, this post-holiday season, uh, author of I Can't Breathe, which I finally finished, uh, amazing on Eric Garner and honestly the wider criminal injustice system, if you ask me. And I also read uh, Insane Clown Presidency, which was in all these pontificated books about what created Trump. I think this was one of the better ones and entertaining. So uh, I wanted to talk to you for multiple reasons. there is zero, really zero talk about this on cable news. I don't really see that much in uh, print. So Goldman Sachs, which yeah. uh, played a large role in the global financial crash, um, you know, they got off with a slap on the wrist. They are now being criminally prosecuted by the Malaysian government. Uh, most people investigated, investigated yeah. excuse me, mm-hmm. um, for this really convoluted, hard to explain um uh, one MDB scandal, which Goldman Sachs essentially sold bonds for the Malaysian government and took insane fees. I'm going to stop trying to explain it. Can you explain? Because you've wrote, and I've heard from a lot of experts, that this is the most serious trouble they've been in uh, yeah. maybe ever. Yeah, I think it says, you know, Goldman was in serious trouble in September of 2008. Um, the company probably would have gone under a couple of times, like without the AIG bailout. There was a moment when they applied for a late night um, bank holding company charter uh, in late September of 2008, which allowed them to borrow from the Fed the next morning. If they didn't get that, they were probably in trouble. Since then, this this is the most serious thing to hit the bank. And it's a, the, the problem with this scandal is it's a little bit tough to explain to American audiences because a because it takes place far away and b because it's about a kind of theft that has never really been done before. Um, so the the explanation the, the easiest way to explain it is this: dictators have always stolen stuff, all right. So if you're Mobuto Sese Seiko or Marcos or Suharto, what do you do? Your company produces rubber or diamonds or you know coal or whatever it is. There's usually a state fund or a state enterprise that sells uh, that stuff. And then the dictator rigs the numbers and then diverts most of the proceeds to, to himself, you know, to a Swiss bank account. What happened in Malaysia was a twist on that. They didn't even bother <laughs> getting a product. What they did is they created a sovereign wealth fund called 1MDB. And they went around to investors all over the world and they said, we want to build stuff in Malaysia. We want to build buildings, uh, agricultural products, uh, projects, uh, infrastructure. So we need to raise money for these projects. And then we have this great investment bank, which is going to handle the bonds. So you give to us and, you know, you'll get returns on it very quickly. So they raised like six and a half billion dollars. But they never did any of the actual work. They, it, the money just went off to a like basically a series of dummy accounts close to the prime minister, Najib Razak, and a couple of insiders. And like six and a half billion dollars disappeared. Goldman made roughly six hundred million dollars on this deal. Um, and all they really needed was a was a corrupt dictator and a couple of Goldman bankers. So uh, it's scam of the century. And like to to really 
put it uh, so people could see it. Like part of the fun, part of the proceeds that was supposed to go to like building buildings and agricultural uh, went to casinos. Actually, funding ironically the Wolf of Wall Street with yeah. Leonardo, with Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, really extravagant artwork. I mean, it basically went to like toys for the dictator and Goldman. Um, essentially, they came in in 2012. They organized. They were, you know, the liaison to some of the bonds. But is it true that Goldman kind of fudged uh, what was actually what the money was going towards? Because of course, Goldman says they were lied to by the Malaysian government. But what and was Goldman? Bankers, yep. Right. Yeah. What was Goldman's part in this? So, okay. First of all, this deal can, it could never have worked without a, a bank like Goldman because. The money is coming from big institutional investors like other sovereign wealth funds, like the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. So you have like the Saudis or the Emiratis, and they're giving hundreds of millions of dollars into this fund. And they're, they're not going to do that for just some guy who shows up on their door, you know, without a reputable Western bank uh, issuing the bonds, they're not going to do it. So they, they, Goldman had two... Uh, bankers in Kuala Lumpur, um, one named Roger Ng and another named Tim Leisner, who, uh, who was a German-born guy, and they put together all these deals. Uh, and essentially what they did is they went around the world, and in some cases there were bribes paid to the buyers. So it's hard to explain. Basically, they would go to another big state-controlled pile of money. There'd be some functionary in charge of guarding that cash, they would give that person a big chunk of money and then that person would spend some other government's money uh, to go into this fund. But you're absolutely right. Like one of the people who was involved in this was a guy named Joe Lowe, who was uh, like a liaison to the Malaysian prime minister. And he ended up taking a, a lion's share of, of this money. And you ever seen the movie Brewster's Millions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was like that, like, they had so much money they couldn't they couldn't spend enough uh, it fast enough and this guy was going around the world he was throwing parties like that cost five hundred thousand dollars at a time he was hiring Snoop Dogg and Dr Dre to play his parties for him uh, Alicia Keys uh, he was buying Van Goghs and Monets uh, and he was doing it as fast as he could and they still couldn't burn through the cash fast enough and that's how they caught him uh, essentially and I mean. To, to basically boil it down for the audience, why this affects America, uh, not 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 directly, but essentially you've written so much and so well about the criminal justice system. Goldman Sachs, if anyone not, not that hasn't bought off the government, like if, if, a, if a regular Joe Schmo banker did this, wouldn't there be criminal liability as opposed <laughs> to paying, you know, settlements, which... It seems to most Americans, the banks, they're just kind of putting this into their balance sheet, like as an expense, the expected fines they're going to pay. Um, So from 2008, as far as I know, there were no serious bankers put in jail. And now you have this, which is essentially, uh, I don't know if it's a Ponzi scheme or or what have you, but Goldman is essentially. It's like a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. 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 So. Okay, now there's an investigation. I think Malaysia is talking about like 7.5 billion, billion uh, in fines. But what what is the American citizen to think? Because as far as I can see, bankers, bankers. I mean, it's now normalized that all right, 
they don't have to worry about actual criminal time for these kinds of things. Right. Yeah. The, the expectation is the government's going to come up with a number um, for Goldman to pay. And the way this usually works is a bunch of people get together in a room and they decide how much uh, the bank can pay without it impacting their bottom line too much. Probably we're going to end up in the neighborhood of somewhere between three to five billion dollars, I think is going to be the penalty, which is a massive penalty. I mean, you think about Deepwater Horizon, it's like, you know, it's that level of a, of a problem. Um, but Goldman will probably uh, sneak through. Now, there are, two, there are two bankers that were based in Malaysia have already been criminally charged. One has already pleaded guilty, which is already a little unusual. But the question is, does it go higher? Um, and, you know, there's some evidence that they uh, that the figures in, in the scheme met with um, uh, some of the senior executives at Goldman Sachs. So there, there, there is a possibility that there could be something. But you're very right. Most likely that nothing will happen. And somebody who steals six or seven billion dollars is not going to go to jail. Well, you know who is in jail, right? People who steal dime bags and that sort of thing. And Lloyd Blankfein, he was the, uh, I think, the CEO of Goldman Sachs or president. So, yeah, mm -hmm. he uh, retired conveniently around the same time this happened. Um, yep. So there's, there's, I don't know if there's, uh, if it's been proven yet, but there's reports that he met uh, with Malaysian officials directly about this. Um, obviously, if a head of a bank uh, was held liable and possibly had. Um, criminal consequences that might deter uh, other banks from doing this. Uh, what, where does blank find come into this? So uh, what Goldman told me is that they've looked back in the past and they've found three instances where blank find might have met with um, Joe Lowe, the guy, the guy who was doing that Brewster's million spending spree. Uh, and of those three instances, they can only say for sure that, that Lowe was at one of them. Uh, there's been some reports that that was a face-to-face -face meeting, uh, and the news—the news of that, which leaked out in November, uh, was what caused Goldman's share price to start going in the toilet. It was uh, in the in the mid 200s range. It was you know two two thirty, two forty, something like that. Uh, it's now down in the 160 dollar range. The the company's lost about 30 to 35 percent of its value. Um, in the last year, with most of that coming in the last three months, almost entirely because of that news, because people, because the expectation was, oh yeah, they'll just write a check and this will go away. But this this speaks to the, poss the possibility, at least, that something else could happen. And uh, moving from one uh, treacherous bank to another, uh, <laughs> Wells Wells Fargo, um, they basically created fake accounts. Right. Uh, millions of fake accounts. Uh, and now they're, it's not a small amount, but I guess to them, is it really a lot? Uh, facing 575 million uh, in settlements to all 50 states, including DC. Um, Wells Fargo, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't even know where to start because there's been so many headlines with Wells Fargo over yeah. the last couple of years. But they opened 3.5 million fake bank and credit card accounts without customer knowledge. Uh, they've already been fined $1 billion uh, from two federal regulators. Uh, is Wells Fargo going to face? I mean, I, I'm asking you knowing the answer, but uh, what what am I missing with what happened with Wells Fargo and are they facing any uh, criminal liability? I think what we you know, Wells Fargo is more of a pure um, 
uh, depository bank than Goldman is. Um, they, the, their trouble is probably less serious than Goldman's is um, because Goldman is facing a couple of different problems at once. Number one, it's facing the, you know, it's being, the, this scandal is being investigated in 10 different countries. There's all kinds of people out to try to, with their hand out to try to get the money back. There's two class action suits. There's the possibility of penalties in Malaysia, Singapore, the United States, all over the world. It's, it's, it's going to be an enormous amount of money. Wells is probably, this is a, you know, the, the phony accounts thing. It's basically just a run of the mill scandal that these banks get into all the time. Um, and you know, half a billion dollars isn't, isn't so much, uh, to, to these, to these people for, for a fine. Um, the company has been, had a lot of trouble though. I mean, you know, they, they reputationally, they went through, you know, I think for customers that this is a serious trust issue for them. You know, you, you go in, you give somebody your personal information, you don't know what they're doing with it. Um, they also got caught. Uh, they were the first bank that got caught overtly targeting minorities in their subprime mortgage scam. Uh, they had emails back and forth in the Maryland office talking about selling loans to mud people and creating ghetto loans, and they had to pay a big fine for that. So that bank has taken a big hit too. But I, I think Goldman right now, between the shareholder run on, on the on the stock and all the various investigations, it's in a much more serious place. And let me ask you, uh, broadening it out to American politics. So uh, for the first time uh, since 2008, uh, Wall Street donated more to the Democratic Party during the midterms than to the Republican Party. Uh, mm -hmm. As of October 17th, so like a month before the midterms, they donated $85 billion to Democrats. So we know Wall Street usually hedges its bets. I mean, Wall Street was donating to Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton. They, they usually donate. I wouldn't say equally, but they always sprinkle both parties, usually more the Republican Party. Now yeah, it's, they're it's pretty close, but it's usually more to the Republicans. Yeah, right. So what do you what do you see as the reason for this uptick? Obviously, it was expected the Democrats were going to retake the House because uh, I'm hearing the message. We all hear the message from Democrats. You know, Trump's the Antichrist. Uh, America will be just dandy once we get rid of Trump and the tax scam and all these things, but I, I haven't seen, other than rhetorical change, I haven't seen much policy change from the Democratic Party when it comes to Wall Street, uh, regulations, or, or any substantive, I mean, I was just researching, we, uh, Wall Street, uh, excuse me, Goldman Sachs has gotten $800 million in state and federal subsidies since 2000. I mean, it's amazing. 800 billion? 800 million. 800 million. Oh, yeah. It's probably more than that, actually. Yeah. yeah. OK, well, that's what I mean, uh, they, they got. 13 billion just in the AIG bailout. If you count, if you count that. I'm, so. uh, yeah. No, this is a different category. I'm, I'm oh, talking uh, from Good Jobs First has them at 800 million in state and federal grants. Mm -hmm. And in the bailout, uh, they have them at almost almost a billion. Yeah. yeah. So um, what, what do you think as far as Wall Street looking ahead to 2020? Uh, seems like they're cozying up uh, to Democrats quite a bit. Yeah, no, I think they will. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're going to see um, an incredibly aggressive effort to try to get candidates like Sherrod Brown, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders kind of out of the picture, because that's the only thing that could queer that financial advantage for the uh, the Democrats. Um, I, on Wall Street, you know, there's a, there's a long tradition 
of people who are, you would characterize as maybe socially liberal, but they're very sort of fiscally laissez-faire. Uh, they like the Democratic Party, the sort of Bob Rubin category of, of Democrat. Um, you know, Rubin was the head of Goldman. He was Clinton's Treasury Secretary. And there's a whole uh, sort of long list of people who are of his ilk. Um, and they clearly see Trump as a destabilizing uh, force. They see him um, as a, a, a nationalist who imperils a lot of the um, uh, the progress they've made towards a, a sort of global banking system. Um, you know, Gary Cohn, for instance, was very anti-Brexit, uh, but Trump invited him into the White House anyway. Uh, Gary Cohn was the sort of co-head of, of Goldman at the time. Um, Gary but, Cohen, who stole the uh, trade deal off his desk, Gary Cohn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think the Democrats are, are certainly going to have a huge financial advantage from most industries, um, depending on who the candidate is. I mean, if it's turns out to be Bernie or, or Sherrod Brown, who's pushed the too big to fail bill or, um, or Liz Warren, uh, you know, I think that that might change the equation a little bit, but yeah. And do you think, um, Wall Street, if you look at, I mean, I think, I don't know. I don't know what you think. I think Beto O'Rourke, I, I don't know if he's going to be a factor, you know, in six months. I know, I know he's the hot thing now, but you, you look at Beto O'Rourke, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, um, Joe Biden, obviously a lot of rhetoric now we're not taking cat, you know, they're Johnny come lately progressives, you know, we're not taking corporate PAC money, even though we're still taking a lot of executive money. Um, do you think wall street kind of takes in factors in like, all right, well, we know if they're elected, you know, they'll do the right thing. It's just to get elected. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's a big issue in the democratic party right now. I mean, I, I obviously there's a huge schism, uh, in the war, in the land of people who would classify themselves as Democrats, and the the fundamental, the root of that controversy is really about fundraising, because because the kind of Sanders wing of the party, um, you know, if he's if you even want to call it, because of course he's not really a Democrat um, until he runs, but uh, you know, their idea is you can't you can't be subsidized by the pharmaceutical industry, the financial services industry, the the uh, insurance industry, and then do populist legislation and and protect people. So they're they're increasingly pushing candidates to take those pledges that you talked about. Um, uh, you know, to, to not take cap money or PSC money, excuse me. Um, and I, I think you know industry is very concerned about that. You, there are already rumblings that. Um, you know, this, this is a thing that's It's going to be an incredibly divisive issue in the party going forward. Uh, and I think you've seen that already with this little flare up over the Beto Bernie thing, which was really such a tempest in the teapot, but it was turned into such a huge deal because it, it hit right in that nerve about what this whole debate is about. I don't know what you think, but that, that, that's what it seemed to me. Well, I'd like to ask you because you've done some like serious journalism and, and God bless David Sirota, but like I've never seen more reverse psychology in my life. I mean, the guy, that story, it was great, was the equivalent of C-SPAN. I mean, it was just <laughs> literally a regurgitation of his record. And I mean, you have you have the near attendant crowd and, and even, you know, politicians making it seem like these are attacks. And you saw this from Hillary Clinton. 
Bernie Sanders, I mean, he barely laid a glove on her. And it was like, you're personally attacking me by pointing out my record. Um, right. I, I think we're going to see more of this because they don't want to talk about the record or the donation. So there's kind of this deflection onto the Bernie bros and uh, attacks and, you know, they're poisoning the well. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think it was they're very troubling. I mean, I, I was with David just before he he did that tweet. We were up in Vermont and um, for the Sanders gathering thing. And, you know, the people who think this is some kind of like Vermont led conspiracy to to hit Beto O'Rourke. Like I didn't hear Beto O'Rourke's name once the whole time we were in Vermont. David, you know, if you know him, gets pretty intense about subjects when he's uh, covering a thing. He's been into oil and gas for the last uh, three months. He did a 30,000 word feature. I mean, a, a 10,000 word feature, excuse me, on uh, at the end of October. Uh, and he's very interested in this whole whole issue of um, uh, industry financing local candidates. Right. And doing doing that to amend, uh, you know, on the, on the state or, uh, you know, state house level. So he was just sort of flipping through open secrets, which is the tool that everybody uses um, to, to look at industry support. Uh, and he, he tweets out a link to the open secrets top contributors page. And that turned into this mother of all kerfuffles, you know, attacks on Democrats. Like, if that's what, what, what they're going to call an attack, I mean, this is going to turn into the ugliest campaign season in history because things are going to get way worse than that. And, and um, the idea that we can't even examine the record of a candidate, I, don't, I mean, I don't have any feelings about Beto O'Rourke one way or the other, but, you know, I'd like to know what he voted for uh, mm-hmm. and where the money's coming from. Uh, and I don't understand this idea that we shouldn't even talk about that. I think it's crazy. Yeah, I was a little jealous, to tell you the truth, because I, <laughs> I, I wrote a piece before uh, the Senate election between he and Cruz. I said, you know, if I was in Texas, of course, I'd, want, I'd vote for Beto. But I mean, I, I found he was doing uh, fundraisers with mega fossil fuel lobbyists <laughs> right before the campaign. So anyway, uh, I want to ask you, obviously, the news is Elizabeth Warren is the first out of the gate. Um, this was expected. Uh, I thought her video was fairly well. I have some some gripes with her as far as being a little missing in action on some progressive fights. Economically, she obviously uh, scares the living daylight out of uh, Wall Street and, and that kind. But a lot of uh, Bernie supporters, uh, progressives, uh, didn't like that she didn't endorse him, didn't like that she uh, wasn't really uh, outspoken against the Sandy, Standing Rock movement uh, mm-hmm. at, at No Dapple. She's also voted uh, for a lot of this wild military spending. Uh, what do you what do you see as far as I'm not asking you to procrastinate who's going to be the nominee, but what is the effect of her running? Because I my only fear is she could splinter uh, uh, votes away from Bernie. I don't know if she has a realistic chance of de- be, being the nominee, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, w- I was a little surprised that there was because there was this um, uh, outpouring of negative press against Warren uh, in I would say late November, early December, which is, you know, having covered, this is going to be my fifth presidential campaign that I'm covering. Usually when you see that, it's an indication that the party is trying to send a message to a candidate, like, we don't want you to run, right? 
Like if you if you run, we're going to keep, you know, calling up reporters and telling them all this negative stuff about you and how your campaign is doomed. So it's meant to be kind of a shot across the bow. And I didn't understand that because from my point of view, they should want the party should want Warren in the race for exactly the reason you you cited. She's one of the few people who has a chance of splintering the Sanders vote if Sanders wins. I mean, Sanders runs. Um, but, you know, she's she's going to run. I, you know, as, as a candidate, I've seen her. She uh, I hate to make like a, a traditional campaign reporter observation about her, but she she doesn't um, enjoy the process of campaigning uh, in the way that people who traditionally win these things do. Uh, the the people who do well on the campaign trail, which is a real grind uh, physically and emotionally, um, they just love sort of glad handing people and talking and holding forth. Bernie has a more of a rabbinical thing going. He likes to teach, right? The Bill Clinton used to like to kind of hold like, you know, sermon sit-ins, right? Um, Warren is really reserved, even in the Senate, if you watch her from the Senate gallery, which I have from time to time, she doesn't schmooze with the other senators very much. Um, but the one thing that she does have, which is really interesting, is she knows how Wall Street works. Uh, she's probably the first candidate who's ever run for president who could tell you, for instance, what derivatives clearing is and how it works. Um, she's the first financial, true financial literate, uh, maybe except for Mitt Romney. Uh, who's run for office, and that will be interesting. You know, it, it will, it'll be interesting to see how aggressively she starts talking about some of these issues because she was very aggressive against people like Jamie Dimon during the London Whale episode, and she knows what the problems are. It's just a question of whether she's going to voice all of those things. Right. I don't want to ask you because obviously you've written about criminal justice, uh, economic oppression against uh, black and brown people. Uh, Hillary Clinton got 5% less uh, compared to Obama, uh, African-American turnout, same numbers for Latino. Uh, I don't know if it was more she didn't inspire or, or what what, hap what happened. Obviously, um, that is the fastest growing demographic. And I, I try not to get in fights with more Hillary uh, Hillbots, but sometimes I do. To me, Bernie Sanders, he's made inroads uh, with non-white voters, according to the polls. I don't know if he did the best job of explaining why his policies would disproportionately lift um, black and brown people. Uh, what are your thoughts? Because you hear from Trump, oh, we have the lowest unemployment among uh, black people in American history. I mean, I cover Flint, Detroit, a lot of inner cities. Uh, that doesn't pop out to you that things are booming for, for uh, minorities. Uh, what right. do you think as far as the minority vote and more importantly, um, you know, this smoke screen that Trump is sending out? Well, I, I mean, I'll, I'll agree with you and be critical of Bernie a little bit. Um, I think he missed a lot of opportunities in 2016 to um, elucidate why the things that he was talking about would have resonated more uh, with minority voters. I think there was a moment when uh, Hillary uh, said that thing about ending too big to fail won't end racism or whatever it was. And I think Bernie could have countered with a, you know, a very coherent sort of exploration about what the subprime mortgage crisis really was, because it's, it really at its core was a rehash of just ancient race crimes, the 40 acres and a mule, the contract mortgage, 
uh, you know, things that that uh, you know black and brown voters have been familiar with over the years. It was exactly the same scam. It was white people from the city going into poor, lower middle class uh, minority neighborhoods, offering them basically uh, too good to be true mortgages, getting their names on a dotted line, and then charging them injurious penalties. Uh, and he could have explained that. He could have explained that, look, the things that, that I'm trying to talk about, I'm trying to end institutional racism uh, by going after these issues. And he, I don't think he articulated it as well as he could have. Um, but, um, you know, we'll see. I mean, uh, I don't, it's hard to say. Um, I, don't, I don't like to talk about sort of like the black vote. I think that's what it's a, it's a campaign cliche that, it, that always ends up kind of being misused. Um, but I, there's no doubt that it's going to be a huge issue in this campaign um, there, there, there's going to be a lot of sort of overt talk about race in a way that we haven't seen on the campaign trail probably ever, uh, maybe since the, you know, the sixties, uh, it's just such a, in the age of Trump, it's, it's become such a, a central focus of everybody. So, um, so we'll see, we'll see how, the, how, how everybody shapes up on that. I want to ask you, um, I mean, sometimes Trump by accident kind of appears like he's going to do the right thing. I was cautiously optimistic when he spoke about uh, withdrawing troops from Syria. Then you had half of the troops from Afghanistan. Uh, now it's we're pausing, as Lindsey Graham says, who I'm deathly afraid might be the next defense sec- secretary. Um, right. um, OK, we're pausing now on withdrawing troops from Syria and now Afghanistan. Well, he never actually said that. Um, if, if there's anything that I think special interests are more worried about or equally worried about uh, as to a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren presidency, uh, the war industry is good uh, for most special interests. Um, what are your thoughts on Trump's rhetoric? Do you actually think there's going to be any follow through? Uh, I don't think it's a major issue among his base, but it seems that uh, right, whatever his motive is, he does want to. Uh, start winding down troops. I just don't actually see the execution there. So when I was following Trump around uh, the, the last election, one of the things I, no- I noticed early was that he started experimenting a little bit on the stump with talking about uh, sort of more isolationist themes. Uh, he would criticize NATO here and there. He would start saying things like, um, you know, we're spending all this money. We build a school over there. They blow up the school. We can't even build a school in Brooklyn. And I think what he noticed was the crowd was, re- was responding positively to that rhetoric. And Trump, Trump does have an ear for that kind of thing. When he starts to feel crowds moving in one direction, almost like a comedian, he he will gravitate in that direction. And he does have um, inklings in that direction. I think he he does think that on some level that, uh, you know, there's a tremendous uh, waste there with, with uh, our, our military policy. He is not enthusiastic about NATO in general, um, our military commitments abroad. The, the problem is he's also very susceptible to criticism that he's weak, right? So when people tell him that he needs to bomb somebody or else he's going to be weak, then he turns around and changes his mind two minutes later. Uh, and that's why that's why he's, he hasn't been consistent on this issue. Um, but clearly what I saw on the campaign trail was that the instant he started talking about NATO in the w- in the way that he did, which was such an anathema, it's a total taboo 
in campaign politics. Nobody's ever really, no, no prominent candidate has ever really questioned that the, the structure of our uh, interventionist policy abroad that's when you started seeing such an avalanche of negative press toward him. And I, and I, and I think that's, um, it's still a major point of contention. Like that's the one thing they hate about him the most, even though to me, that's the area where we should be encouraging that instinct with him because I don't want him anywhere near a war or, um, you know, press, I don't want him carrying the nuclear briefcase in a, while we're engaged in a, in a military conflict in Syria with five other nations around. I mean, I, the, I think we should be encouraging him to withdraw, but, you know, we'll see. And I can't, can't have you go without talking about Russia, of course, because um, I, I think it's getting to a point where this is going to be a major issue in the 2020 campaign uh, and a litmus test. Who, who is more mouth-breathing uh, and fire-breathing among Democrats that, you know, Russia is responsible for all U.S. ills. Uh, now you have this report that Russia, um, uh, through their social media campaigns, was targeting African-Americans and Jill Stein voters and Bernie voters. I think I think a lot of that is kind of crazy. You know, in, in, there's no empirical way to know if that swayed one vote, much less an election. Um, right. But... You know, obviously in Mueller, uh, it seems like he's taking his time, but uh, it seems to be closer, maybe closer to the end than, than the beginning. Um, what are your thoughts on recent developments? Because from, from what I could read, uh, really these social media uh, troll farms and this and that. Uh, I mean, I read the exit polls in, in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Trade and immigration were, were the biggest factors. I, I didn't see anything on WikiLeaks or, or Russia. Uh, do you think this is going to play a part in 2020? Well, it was interesting, the Democrats heading into the mid midterms in the last two months, they just pulled the plug on the Russiagate stuff. You didn't hear a peep about it um, heading into November. Uh, and I think that's because they, they probably saw the polls showed that most people really just don't care about this issue as much as people care about it in Washington and New York and LA. Um, so, it's going to depend a lot on what happens with the completion of the Mueller report, which I understand is going to come come down probably in mid to late February. Uh, if if there's something huge there, uh, and that's always been the question with this, is what 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 there is there with this case? Um, then of course it's going to be a major factor. He might he might be under impeachment while while the campaign is going on, um, but if if they don't have a direct hit at the end of this special prosecutor investigation, then I think that becomes an issue for Trump, uh, frankly. Uh, so it'll it'll be interesting. I, I was I was very surprised the Democrats put so much energy into that issue uh, for two years, and then they then they just sort of let it go for a while, and now they've revived it again. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what you think about it, but I, I, my, my sense is that, that, that it's going to depend a lot on, on the end of the investigation. Yeah, I, I think it's less about will it be an issue and more about will it be a, a mechanism and a tool that uh, right. the DNC and, and others use to stay away from talk about, you know, money in politics and these trade deals and actual issues and uh, more focus on our democracy is at, at grave risk because of yeah, the argument. We've already seen last year the Washington Post ran an editorial that said basically when 
the Russians decide to support Bernie Sanders, how will dem- Democrats respond? Right. So they're they're using this kind of guilt by association tactic, you know, with sites like Hamilton 68. You know, it's a mechanism that allows them to point at basically everything, anything and say the Russians are stoking the yellow vest pro- protests. They're stoking Black Lives Matter. Uh, protests. They're behind the the Green Party run. They're behind the Sanders movement. And they're trying. Uh, the, the the propaganda idea here is to create an ick factor around all of these various targets. Even if people rationally don't accept it, there's a thing that happens when you follow social media long enough, where you just don't want to be the person to to tweet. Yeah, I don't know about that. Right. And you end up being quiet about it. And then next thing you know, you're accepting the, the central premise of it. So you don't want to be that person who's tabbed, you know, Putin's favorite. Right. Uh, and they're definitely going to use that tactic. There's no question about it. It's just a question of how how excessive it's going to be. And uh, last question. So 2006, 2007, there were definitely signs that the housing market was going to crash. There's a whole movie, <laughs> The Big Short, about that. Um, right. I'm not an economist. I know you don't describe yourself as one, but I think student loans, I don't know if it's a bubble, but it's definitely uh, a problem. I mean, it's projected that by 2023, I believe it is, 40% of borrowers are going to be behind. Uh, you're seeing just ballooning debt uh, as we speak. And obviously, there's no cap on how much these universities can charge. It, it just goes up every year. Um, yeah. I'm a, if once I have kids, they're going to University of Phoenix online because yeah. I, I don't know how anyone sends their kids to college these days. Uh, what are you seeing as far as student loans? Uh, is there any other sector that um, has some risky behavior going on that uh, CNBC isn't covering per se? So uh, student loans are a little different because you know most of them are are federally federally guaranteed. Uh, so the, the the possibility for cascading losses created out of thin air that you have with mortgages uh, isn't as great uh, as it was with the mortgage market. Also, the market's smaller than the than the mortgage market was. The problem is that the, the same mechanism that existed to create uh, the subprime mortgage loan problem still exists. You still have the same derivative instruments that allow you to uh, create a lot of, ca- uh, of credit uh, and sell, you know, tranches of debt, uh, so you can make lots and lots of subprime loans and sell pieces of it as AAA debt. You can do that in any, uh, with any kind of debt. You can do it with aircraft loans. You can do it with credit cards. You can do it with uh, car loans and commercial loans, what they call CLOs. Um, and I've, you know, I've heard over the last year or so. I have. I live in a part of the world that's. I live in Jersey City, which is right across the street from the, the river from Wall Street. And I always get there are a lot of Wall Street people in my building, and they say, you know, watch out for the commercial loan market. You know, we're seeing kind of the same bubblish tendencies. But I've been hearing that every year since 2008, so I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's the same situation where you could go to any neighborhood in America in 2007 and see that people were getting free houses. Um, you know, I, I remember getting a home loan myself in 2006 and the, the application process took two minutes. And I remember thinking, well, that's, that can't be right, you know? Uh, so we'll see. I mean, student loans is definitely a huge problem. I think it's, very, it's, it's a massively destructive issue for young people, but I don't know if it's gonna be a bubble that bursts anytime soon.
Gotcha. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, obviously, people could find you Rolling Stone and uh, you'll be on the campaign trail. So hopefully I'll see you there uh, once I get a little bit Absolutely. more fun, a little bit yep. more funding and uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Good luck with status quo. Thanks, man. All right. Take care.